Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional, and those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. Today, we're going to yet again explore the topic of diversity, inclusion, and equity. DEI efforts are gaining increasing awareness. Many organizations have made steps to improve their diversity, yet the problem of unequal pay, unequal hiring, and the propensity for lower-level jobs to be filled with diverse talent, while the upper levels remain homogenous, discrimination, unconscious, and yes, conscious bias are all very much so still present. So we will dive in yet again. Today, I am pleased to have with me Minho Bopaya, someone dedicated to helping organizations improve their diversity and inclusion efforts. She is a marketing, communications, and branding strategist with 20 years of professional experience and the founder and principal consultant of Brevity and Wit. She is an expert in using psychological principles to create brand identities and communications that win both hearts and minds. She is fierce and dedicated, and frankly, just what we need. So thank you very much, Minel, for joining me today. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all mine. What things are you, would you say you're tired of hearing about in the public sphere of diversity talks? Oh, what a great question to like start on. Um, What am I tired of hearing? I don't think, I don't know if there's anything specifically I'm super tired of hearing because I think having the conversation is the important part and people are all at very different points in their journey. And so I don't try to discredit that or shame anybody for being at whatever stage they are. The, the sort of behavior that I might be a little bit exhausted by is, um, one, companies using it for PR and not being authentic in their commitment um, and creating really great ads while fighting against unions to pay minimum wage or $15 an hour to their employees. Um, that sort of, I think, general hypocrisy is what I'm tired of, probably more than anything else. Um, and I and I think that's that's probably the most exhausting part in this field when you think you're making headway because people are telling you what you think you want to hear, but they're not being real about it. And I would rather have somebody who is just real about their hangups and why they think they can't do it and start from there. Yeah, absolutely. And people are, you know, little kids know when you're being disingenuous at a shockingly low age, um, (laughs) as my daughter continuously proves to me. And, adults are no different, right? We know, we know when you're faking it and it, it, it really is a turnoff. You know, it, it can be the difference between someone joining your organization that should, that would add a lot of value and, and going somewhere else um, among other problems. Like people just won't buy your stuff. Um, what do you think are some misconceptions that are taken as fact when it comes to dealing with diversity issues? I, I don't think that there is a lot of, um, I don't know if there's really like facts yet. I, I actually think the biggest misconception is that there are not, nobody knows how to do this mm. or that there aren't best practices when there are. And so, um, and I think actually the other one is that I think people think being passionate about this is enough of a qualification to do this work. Uh, and so you see a lot of people putting up their shingles and obviously this is a entrepreneurial or, uh, you know, industry. Um, there's no way to formally get trained in this really. Um, so I want to invite people in who are new 
And also at the same time, just because you're passionate doesn't mean you're, you're going to be good at it. Um, there are things to know. There are global benchmarks. There is a practice of using an organizational development lens for doing this work, which is a bit different than how you would do community organizing or activism in a community or in a society at large. And so um, I think um, I think that is probably the, the and, and, and at the same time, you don't want to um, dampen somebody's passion sure. for this work. So you want to leverage it, but then also have the humility to understand that there is a body of knowledge and your own inner work that you have to do before you would be ready to do this with an organization. That's interesting. There are, in fact, a lot of passionate people out there. You know, they got fired up, um, especially recently, you know, with the Black Lives Matter resurgence that we saw last year and and, uh, just some of the horrible things that have happened. Do you think that it's possible for people that have such passion, but maybe not, aren't maybe on the right path to do damage to make things worse? Absolutely. And that's my biggest concern. Like, really, the first rule of this work is do no harm. Mm-hmm. And um, I particularly find it problematic when there are passionate people from dominant identity groups who really just want to identify as an ally but haven't done the inner work yet. And I was like, you're about – and the biggest example, I think, was after George Floyd's murder um, and the activities last summer where a lot of companies were like, we want to have a town hall on race. And I was like, well, what have you done so far? And they're like, nothing. And I was like, well, that's not the place to start. <laughs> because mainly because, and this is sort of the nuance of it that people don't understand. There is a difference in having a meeting that is for the education of people in, in dominant groups, like white people, about the lived Black experience, and a meeting that is about healing for Black people. And people, and people of other marginalized identities who have been traumatized. Those two agendas do not mix well. Because what you have then is you have people of color going up and telling their stories of being excluded or of trauma. And people in dominant identities, and in this, if we're talking about race, white people, using that to educate themselves and then asking questions and poking holes in the story. Yeah. And that is then re-traumatizing to not be believed or validated when you're sharing something you haven't healed from yet. And so, you know, first of all, that's not a good idea that that is doing harm. But also if you're a DEI consultant, I often advise people who are new to this, you shouldn't be sharing stories that you haven't healed from. Like, it's not my job to work out my trauma on my clients. I've got to go do that on my own and then deal with the client and whatever their issues are and know where my boundaries are and what I can disclose and what I haven't healed from that I'm not going to disclose because it is not up for their input, you know? And so that's sort of the nuance of this work that I think people in their passion miss, um, that there are appropriate times for certain meetings and stories and there are appropriate times for other meetings and stories. And there's a difference between those two. That's a great answer. Um, you know, something that I've explored as I've learned more and more about this, you know, one of the issues is there's like a whole language to talking about things that if you don't know what you're doing uh, and you haven't been um, steeped in in how other people are talking about it, you can accidentally quite easily insult people. 
just yeah. saying using the wrong word or you know saying some trying to access your feelings in front of somebody about your experience with diversity particularly as a white person is always dicey because you don't know you know that's the thing it's like you don't really know and it's it's very hard I, I talk about language in my book a lot because I think we kind of get it wrong. Um, so I have a new book coming out called Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. Um, it's coming out September 7th, and it's available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and bookshop.org. And I talk about language and communicating about DEI. And there's a subheading that I have that says, if race is language, caste is grammar. And it's sort of a paraphrase from... Um, Isabel Wilkerson's book, but it talks about the difference between word choice and sentence structure and what you're doing with your sentences. And so the example I give is, um, you know, sometimes people, particularly of anybody over 70, I feel gets a little bit of a pass on how they may refer to certain groups, right? Um, and so sometimes elderly um, Indian immigrants will use the wrong terms referring to like Native Americans as Red Indians or like, or something like that, mm -hmm. which is wrong, right? Like that word choice should not be used, but then they will say it in the context of a sentence, like what this country did to Red Indians was completely criminal. It was a genocide. Their sentence structure, the thoughts behind their sentence are spot on, even though their word choice is wrong. Right. Meanwhile, you have somebody like Amy Cooper who tried to call the police on an innocent um, black man who was just bird watching, who said that she was going to call the police to say that an African-American man is threatening me. She used all the right words, but her sentence structure was still to commit violence and to uphold white supremacy. And so I really believe that we have to be more attentive to the, the structure of our sentences and the thoughts behind, like, what are we really communicating? Um, and be willing to then give people a little bit of a pass when their word choice is not accurate. Now, I'm not saying you should half-ass this, like you gotta make an earnest effort um, and, you should, and you should learn how to correct yourself and learn how to be corrected. Um, but I think that we gotta give a little bit as well to be able to make sure that people are fostering beliefs that are inclusive, even if they're not absolutely perfect in every single word that they use to express that belief. Yeah, well said. You know, I just imagine all these, these first time meetings at organizations across the country over the last year, where they're just throwing people in a room, and they just start talking about it. And it's so the antithesis to what usually what HR is about, because HR doesn't really typically want to know specific details about people's challenges, personal life challenges. They don't want to, there's a whole set of beliefs out there. It's like, don't find out what their, you know, their nationality is. Don't find out what their, their, uh, if they have a different gender identity, don't find out if they have a disability, you know, and and I get that from like a uh, sort of a compliance standpoint, but then you have HR people sitting in these rooms with like tons of people and they're saying, this is a safe space to say anything. I don't really understand how anyone's supposed to navigate that. I've thought about it a lot of times and I, I don't, what do you see? Like, how do you guide HR people that are to have those kinds of conversations? Yeah. I mean, there's really, we're not, this is not about safety. This is about bravery. We need 
courageous spaces. We need courageous leaders. This is difficult work. And if you don't have courage, you can't do it. Um, and so I, you know, there's a, some people use a term brave spaces, but I, I would also be like, what is the point of that conversation? What are you trying to do with that conversation? And you need to give people the, the guidelines. Like, so there's a wonderful book called the art of holding space, but but this is also like a, a facilitator term, right? Like you want to create a container for this work and that container needs to have boundaries. Um, this is not a boundaryless, you know, open air event. This is not a venting of grievances work, right? And so you need to be very intentional in what sort of experience are you creating and what do you want to leave people with? And if you haven't thought that through, you're not really ready to do this work then. Um, so that's where I would start. I wouldn't advise people to just put a bunch of people in a room and say, this is a safe place because you don't. And also, do you even have those that kind of trust? Have you fostered that sort of trust in the environment? If you have not, then that's also, you're basically lying to your people. Like, And how can you guarantee that? And going back to my earlier example, if somebody's looking to be healed and another person is looking to be educated, the person who's looking to be educated cannot hold that other person's trauma. They do not know how. And so an experience or a conversation that is leading to education needs to be structured differently than an experience that is leading to being healed. And so if you don't know what the purpose of this event is, then you shouldn't be having it. I think that probably the most difficult part for organizations that have made some kind of decision to improve their diversity efforts is getting started. You know, we see that pop up in, in surveys that we do and we see it, you know, my, my wife's in, in sales. So she sells for our company and people are asking her all the time, you know, do you have courses in diversity? Do you know how we can get started? And I think it's, it's a real challenge. So let me ask you, what advice would you have for an organization that, uh, that, that wants to just, they want to get started and they don't know how. When we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, what we're really talking about is power. How is power held? How is it shared? How does power move in relationships in the organization? And how does it move through the systems in the organization? Now, going back to my earlier point, power in an organization is different than power in our democracies. In that, um, in our democracy, because we ideally have one person and one, you know, one vote. Mm. We have the ability to vote out our leaders. And so grassroots organizing can be very powerful in creating change. In organizations, employees generally do not get to vote out their CEO. And so therefore, and that's not to say that an organization cannot be more democratic and inclusive, but how power moves is different in an organization than it is in a community. And so therefore, when we start DEI in an organization, we have to start with leadership. If leadership is not engaged, any sort of other movement in the organization is eventually going to be stymied. And so we did say that we like, we've got to start with leadership. We need to be able to talk to leadership, assess where they are, and then work with leadership to work through their issues around this and come up with a vision for the organization. 
And in that process, it often involves doing an assessment, getting input, learning how to listen to the rest of the organization and crafting a vision that everybody can get behind. But it also means being a visionary leader and setting that vision for people and saying, this is where we want to go. And then once you have a vision and you have leadership aligned with that vision, then you need to create a structure for how this work is going to happen. Nominating some person of color in your organization to do this work for no pay, with no scope, with no authority, and with no budget is not how you do this work. That is upholding systemic inequality. You need to be able to have a budget. You need to be able to have a structure in place that allows for accountability. You need to give people a mandate to change things. Um, And it needs to be part of somebody's job description in a really explicit way that gives them the authority to actually change the culture and in alignment and in um, concordance with the leader of the organization. And that's just the foundation. After that, we can talk about your hiring practices, your marketing practices, your operations, your systems, your promotion practices, and all of those other things. But we need to start with vision, leadership, and structure. And that foundation is part of the global diversity, equity, and inclusion benchmarks which are available and which were established by like 112 experts in this field. Hmm. You know, so that, like I said, there's best practices and that's it. Like starting with leadership. If you could share some of the, you know, some of those resources with me, I can link to them. Yeah, absolutely. In the, Cause they sound really important. One of the, one of the questions that always comes up when we talk about these things is leaders that aren't dedicated to diversity how do you convince them? And every time I ask somebody or we talk about it, the business case for diversity comes up. Mm. So it's been used so much. It's basically a buzz phrase at this point. And I personally find it to be a little cynical um, because why do I have to tell somebody they're going to make money from diversity for them to take diversity seriously? But apparently this is, this is the way. So I'm curious what your thoughts of specifically that phrase, business case for diversity, and whether that's an effective effective tool for convincing people that otherwise would have no interest in creating such a, such a program. I generally believe that you should make the business case or the organizational case for diversity, but I wouldn't tie it to profitability. So, so it's a little bit more nuanced than, so, you know, people sort of shorthand this, and that's not really what we're talking about because, um, it's not, first of all, if you tie it to profitability, if you have a bad quarter, people are like the diversity stuff isn't working and they don't want to do it, which is a ridiculous way to measure this stuff because this is over years, you have to change things. But if you don't make the business case, and I've seen this happen with a client where you only talk about it like it's the right thing to do and the moral thing to do, what I started to see happen in that organization is that people in the organization, particularly some on the leadership team, were they were starting to see DEI as charity, as like a CSR, like we're going to be nice and give black people jobs, which is offensive. Yes. And so if you don't see people who are different from you as people that you can learn from that could make your business better, the mission that could help you accomplish the mission of of your organization or the vision for your company, then you are still fundamentally upholding some models of systemic oppression or exclusion. 
And so it is not a business case that is tied to if you hire people of color, you will make more money. It is a business case that is tied to if we want to be relevant in today's world to be able to hire, attract the best talent and to be able to um, market to diverse populations, to be able to achieve organizational efficiency, we need a diversity of people and ideas in this organization and we need to make it possible for differences to be invited and leveraged and welcome and heard. And, and then you may need to get into the specifics because you need to tie it to people to the work that you're actually doing. Because what diversity looks like in a social justice organization and what it may look like in a government con- contracting firm versus a media company is very, very, very different. And the specificity, like that's where the rubber meets the road, right? That tells me, do you actually understand what this is about as it relates to your business? That's a, a great answer. Um, <laughs> the finest I've, I've gotten, because it's, I think there's this idea that you can just sort of achieve diversity. Like it's a, mm. I mean, it can be a goal. There's something wrong with, with aiming or striving, but a goal suggests that there is an accomplishment. And when you're done accomplishing it, yeah, you're done. And I, I can't imagine that that's such a thing in diverse, in a, in a diversity effort. There's no way it's not ongoing. Right. I mean, telling me you want to solve diversity is telling me you want to solve accounting or <laughs> like we don't try to solve accounting. We set up an accounting department because that's an ongoing need. We don't try to solve crime. We, we try to come up with solutions to mitigate and lessen it because we know that there will always be threats to our safety, right? Yeah. Similarly, we, like, we will always need to steward diversity, equity, and inclusion, and there will always be threats to inclusion and equity. And so we need to create business functions that address those issues, just like we did when digital technology exploded. So you need to be looking at this long term and figuring out how, that's why we start talking about structure early on. How are we going to embed this and create that sort of accountability for the lifetime of the organization? It's, it's, you don't just jump in and, and get your feet wet. You really have to be dedicated to, this is part of, part of your life now. This is part of your organization. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I just want to thank you again so much for, for joining us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Anytime. I love talking to you guys. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, it, it was a pleasure for me as well. Um, listeners, we're always interested in suggestions you might have for what we should cover next. Please do feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HRWorksPodcast with any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general. You're also welcome to say hello. Remember, you can listen to us on any major podcast platform, including Audible, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and we're also working on adding audio and sometimes even video podcasts to our YouTube channel, links for all of which will be in the description. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.